It's Friday, April 27th, and this is The Daily Dive. We're learning more about Joseph D'Angelo, the man suspected of being the Golden State Killer. He went by many names. East Area Rapist, Diamond Knot Killer, the original Night Stalker, and he's accused of up to 50 rapes and 12 murders. What we know now is that he's been living an unassuming life in Citrus Heights, California, and that decades later it was DNA that helped narrow it down to him. Investigators used DNA from one of the crime scenes years ago and began comparing it to genetic profiles available online from genealogy websites. Following those clues led them to D'Angelo. We will speak to Sacramento Bee reporter Benji Eagle for more. We will also find out more about the fall of America's dad. Bill Cosby has been found guilty of drugging and raping Andrea Constant at his home in 2004. We will speak to BuzzFeed reporter Claudia Rosenbaum, who was in the room when the verdict was handed down, and find out what's next for Bill Cosby. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This case was really solved through some innovative DNA techniques, and so as a result of that, um, that led to law enforcement essentially, as the sheriff said yesterday, surveilling him and obtaining a sample of abandoned or discarded DNA. And from there, we moved forward and they did additional testing. And that was ultimately what what solved this case. Joining us now is Benji Eagle. He's a breaking news reporter for the Sacramento Bee. Thanks for joining us, Benji. Thanks for having me on. So it was an amazing story, decades in the making. On Tuesday, we finally arrested the Golden State Killer um, let's start there with the arrest. Investigators said that a lead came in about a week ago and it had to do with some DNA. And then they went from there. They started casing Joseph D'Angelo and uh, learning some of his methods and his, his schedule, his routines. Yeah. And so we're still trying to figure out exactly what they did to end up with their arrest. But we know that for about a week, they were doing surveillance on him outside his property in Citrus Heights, which is kind of a small city outside of Sacramento. Um, from there, you know, we know that they made their move and did the arrest on Tuesday afternoon at around 4.45. Uh, they uh, anticipated some sort of resistance, even though he is a 72-year-old man, so they had a plan of attack, and when they went in, they didn't have any problems, it sounded like. Uh, they arrested him and booked him into Sacramento County Jail around 2 a.m. Wednesday morning, and that's kind of when uh, news of this started leaking out. So we were uh, working to confirm that story Wednesday morning, and confirmed it maybe around uh, 9 a.m. or so before the noon press conference. Do we know what the source of that DNA was? Uh, at this point, we're still not sure. They're playing that a little close to the vest. But the B did just uh, make a big scoop on Thursday where we confirmed that they did uh, check DNA from the crime scenes in the past against DNA from Joseph D'Angelo's family members that they had given to uh, genealogy websites, uh, the things that do a family tree. Um, so they were able to corroborate it that way. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of like circumstantial DNA, and they were able to follow him through other family members? Is, is that how That's that works? That's kind of what we're thinking at this point. Again, you know, the details are still a little fuzzy, and the DA's office is playing it pretty close to the vest. But they did match uh, DNA from the crime scenes to DNA uh, from the websites, they said. Let's start a little bit from the beginning. Um and details some of his crimes and methods. Uh, they think this all started in 1976. That's right. And so um, for some background, you know, if Joseph D'Angelo really is the East Area Rapist or the Golden State Killer or one of the other nicknames that have been assigned to him, uh, he would be responsible for 45 rapes or more, uh, at least 12 murders. You know, this kind of started 
in East Sacramento in 1976. That's why the nickname, the East Area Rapist, stuck. Uh, stuck. And um, over a two-year period, he raped an estimated 37 women in the Sacramento area. He also is believed to have killed two people. And so he's had those charges pressed against him for the two homicides. You know, that's all suspicion, and it hasn't been confirmed yet. But that's what he's facing. And one of the nicknames he had was the the original Night Stalker. I, I guess they said that he would break into homes, uh, learn the layout of homes, study pictures and names, disable porch lights and unlock windows so that when he'd go back, he was able to get in easily. He would also call and taunt some of his victims to keep them on edge. Yeah, I, uh, I think that was kind of one of the methods that he employed. Uh, there were some cases of him sort of lying in wait and waiting for suspects to fall asleep or preying on them in the middle of the night. Uh, he had a few kind of consistent patterns that we saw, um, you know, things like stacking dishes on the back of the husband while he raped the woman and uh, telling him that if they rattled or moved, that the uh, they would both be shot. So this is really, you know... Uh, pretty crazed mind that people were dealing with there. and they're, uh, I think they're really happy to have caught the man they think did it. He would ransack homes and uh, wouldn't necessarily take high-dollar items or anything, but, you know, small mementos, coins, different things like that. That's right, yeah. Um, that was kind of a consistent pattern that they'd have. Right. I think Michelle McNamara wrote in one of her pieces uh, that he was always a stranger to you because he'd come in and get a flashlight in your face, but you were not to him. He would always know, you know, your schedule and, and know when to, to pounce. Yeah, he often, you know, you touched on this about, you know, him having a flashlight in your face, but he often wore a ski mask to protect his identity. So for a long time, people didn't really have a good idea of what he looked like. But then some police sketches started coming out in the mid-70s. And then he moved from uh, Northern California. He moved his way down to Southern California. He ended up in Orange County, all the way down to Irvine. Um, those are some of the latest crimes uh, that happening in the 80s. That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, really the early 80s, we think that he moved south maybe around 1978, 79, uh, first into the Central Valley and Contra Costa County in the Bay Area. And then um, further, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, made his way down to um, Southern California, um, Orange County, Santa Barbara County, um, Ventura County. And that's where he kind of started committing more homicides, more murders down there, uh, often raping the victims first. But um, that's really where things turned more fatal for his victims. And he also had a, a relationship with the Sacramento Bee in a way. He sent a poem to the newspaper called Excitement's Crave at one point. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we've been trying to track that down and see if the Bee did run it in the late 70s. But, you know, we are seeing some things on the Internet saying that he mailed that to this poem to the Bee and a local TV station, and uh, the mayor of Sacramento at the time. Yeah, in a piece for Los Angeles Magazine in 2013, uh, Michelle McNamara, who was writing a book on the Golden State Killer, she wrote about a portion of the poem. It said, Sacramento should make an offer to make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. 
She wrote, my bet is he's enjoying a comfortable exile, leading an unremarkable life among the unsuspecting, a suburban dad passing unnoticed behind the hedge wall. And then come to find out when he did get arrested and now we're looking more into his life, that was almost spot on. What has he been doing since the murder stopped leading up to now? Sure. So Joseph D'Angelo, who I will just reiterate is the suspect at this point, hasn't been proven to be the the East Area rapist or the... uh, the killer at this point. Uh, for the last 27 years, he's been living in a small city called Citrus Heights outside of Sacramento, working in another city called Roseville outside of Sacramento. He's been working at a Save Mart distribution center, kind of a, a blue-collar sort of job. Um, the people we've spoken with there have really known him as Joe, this kind of just average guy, you know, keeps his mouth shut, didn't smile a lot, they said, and just uh, came in, worked hard, and left. He did retire last year, and so we think he's just been living in Citrus Heights at that point. Uh, like I said, he's 72 years old. And it's worth noting as well that, you know, this is the prime suspect at this point, but he hasn't been convicted. He's not proven to be the East Area rapist, and so he's still the person that we're really interested in, but it's not like he's been uh, proven to be the East Area rapist. Right. And what have neighbors said about him? I know a lot of them said he had kind of a temper. He, would, he was prone to yelling out expletives at times. But other than that, not not much going on there. Sure, yeah, you know, we uh, that's something we've heard from a lot of neighbors is that, you know, when he was doing yard work and things didn't quite go right, they'd hear a lot of profanity being shouted. Other than that, no, though, he's lived in the same spot for many years, and he's had the same neighbors for many years. None of them ever reported having any serious problems with him. They said he was a little quirky and a little angry at times, but nothing that they ever felt like they needed to, to tell their kids not to not to go near him or anything like that. Right. I think one of the neighbors said that we just used to call him freak. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of commonplace for the cranky old man that lives down the street. Uh, really just unassuming. You know, I had a neighbor growing up like that. I'm sure a lot of people didn't, you know, think that it's uh, some serial killer living next door. What's next in this investigation? And, and are there more charges coming? Uh, I believe we're up to six counts as of today. Uh, the Ventura County DA's office has filed two murder charges against him. Uh, Sacramento County DA's office has done the same. And then the Orange County DA's office has filed um, four counts. So I suppose that would actually be eight that we're up to now. Um, the Santa Barbara County's office is still determining whether they're going to file charges or not. Uh, he was, I think he is believed to have committed, I think, four murders in Goleta, a small city in Santa Barbara County. And so we'll see what more charges come out as the you know, in the next coming days. Uh, the rape charges could be a little harder to prove just because there are some statute of limitation laws within California that make that tricky. We'll see what the lawyers feel they can accurately press against uh, Mr. D'Angelo. And they're connecting all of these through DNA, all the murders at least. I believe so. I think we're going to find out more about that as time goes on. Again, this is just the uh, first couple of days of the. Uh, you know, after he's been arrested. So I think that as time goes on, we'll find out more. All right, Benji Eagle, thank you for joining us. He's a reporter for the Sacramento Bee. Thank you for having me. For the last word on this today, I'm going to bring in my producer, Miranda Moreno. She's been reading the book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, that was written by Michelle McNamara. She's a crime writer. Her husband was Patton Oswald. What can you tell me about the book? It's interesting. There's this really cool part at the very end where she writes a letter to whoever she believes the killer to be at the time when she was writing the book and she passed away. 
she had no real solid lead, but now we know who the guy probably is. And her husband, Patton Oswald, went on Late Night with Seth Meyers to read the, her letter. One day soon, you'll hear a car pull up to your curb, an engine cut out. You'll hear footsteps coming up your front walk like they did for Edward Wayne Edwards 29 years after he killed Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew in Sullivan, Wisconsin, like they did for Kenneth Lee Hicks 30 years after he killed Laura Billingsley in Aloha, Oregon. The doorbell rings. No side gates are left open. Your long pass leaping over a fence. Take one of your hyper-gulping breaths. Clench your teeth. Inch timidly toward the insistent bell. This is how it ends for you. You'll be silent forever and I'll be gone in the dark, you threatened a victim once. Open the door. Show us your face. Walk into the light. Andre Constand uh, came here to Norristown for justice. And that's what 12 jurors from Montgomery County provided her. We have shown from our record uh, that money and power are who you are will not stop us from a criminal investigation or prosecuting a case. What was revealed through this investigation was a man who had spent decades preying on women that he drugged and sexually assaulted, and a man who had evaded this moment here today for far too long. Joining us now is BuzzFeed News reporter Claudia Rosenbaum. You were actually uh, in court when the verdict was handed down. Bill Cosby was found guilty of drugging and raping Andrea Consand back in 2004. Just being at the courthouse even before that, we would get notifications, you know, the jury has a question or the jury has another question. But this time we got a notice that everybody just come back to the courtroom. So the tension in the, in the courthouse was pretty high. Everyone pretty much assumed that this was going to be the verdict. So we all piled into the courthouse, um, into the courtroom, and it was packed. They even brought, like, the alternate jurors in the back row. The sheriffs were standing by. So it was a very tense situation. And then they brought the jury in, and they said that they all agreed each count, guilty, count one, count two, count three. So three counts of indecent, aggravated sexual assault which were all felonies and all carry like a 10-year sentence. It was a jury of seven men and five women. It was a unanimous verdict as well, right? Interestingly, it was the exact same jury composition as the previous 2017 trial, which I was also at, which ended in a hung jury. It was the exact same seven men, five women. Two of the jurors were black. One was a black man, one was a black woman. It was the same composition as the last jury, but, you know, they came out with a completely different verdict. So the verdict comes down, he's guilty. What was the reaction of Bill Cosby? Even before they read, you know, the jury came in and the reaction, I could see Bill Cosby was sitting on the edge of his seat. And, you know, his attorneys seemed pretty tense as well. But as soon as the verdict was read, one of, um, she called herself one of Cosby's survivors. Her name is Lily Bernard. She said she was raped by Cosby. She just audibly gasped. And, you know, she started sobbing. I turned towards her just to see her reaction. So there was some reaction in the court in the court audience. Cosby, I didn't see an immediate reaction, though when they started to later the DA, you know, they wanted to revoke his bail. He's out currently on a million dollars bail. And the DA stood up and made an argument, you know, that they wanted to put him in custody immediately because they thought he was a flight risk. 
because we have a private plane. We mentioned in the trial that he could fly all around the country on his private plane. But then Cosby weirdly stood up and said, he doesn't have a plane, you asshole. He doesn't know, and yelled it in the courtroom. Right, and the judge, uh, Judge uh, Stephen O'Neill, T. O'Neill, he didn't really like that, though, coming from the DA, right? He kind of uh, chastised him a little bit, saying, you know, uh, based upon his age and medical condition, I'm not going to lock him right up at this moment. Yeah, it, Mr. Stephen Judge O'Neill, the greatest judge, he's, like, very kind, obviously, you know, well-suited to being a judge, sees both sides, and he wasn't, it wasn't that about his age. He just said that Cosby has shown up at this point to every court hearing, you know, that he has been required to do over the past three years. So to him, that indicates he's going to continue to cooperate with the court and he's not going to be a flight risk. What was uh, Andrea Constant's reaction when the verdict was read? I couldn't see immediately. I mean, she sometimes has like a stoic face, so she didn't exhibit, you know, she's kind of in the front row of the court of the courtroom. But afterwards, she was hugging, you know, members of the district attorney staff. So she seemed very happy. Later at the press conference, she was hugging her attorney. She was smiling, which I don't re- recall her smiling. You know, I haven't seen her smile. She seemed like she was, you know, very happy and relieved. In the last trial, they tried to paint Andrea Constant as a a bitter ex-lover, trying to punish Bill Cosby when the affair that they had went south. What was the defense's tactic this time around? At this trial that we heard about the actual details of their confidential settlements were made public and the fact that she got paid $3.38 million. For the settlement. So they tried to, since that came out, I think they were hoping to use that, the defense, the bigger part of their case, but the prosecution kind of took the wind out of their sails, putting that in their opening statement, just getting it out there, letting everybody know Andrea got this money. So defense tried to use it as she's just a con artist. She was always just out for money. You know, this was just what she wanted to be a millionaire. And, you know, obviously they weren't successful. Right. And once the deposition was released, uh, where Bill Cosby basically admitted giving quaaludes to women, you know, it put more in Andrea Constant's court. Uh, she was had a little more behind her argument. Yeah, and that was one of the things. I mean, that was in the first trial as well. But I think the way the district attorney framed this case, and obviously the sentiment of the country has sort of changed where a lot of people are more aware of victims of sexual assault, don't immediately go to the police. And, you know, it's very hard when someone sort of groomed you and ingratiated himself with your family. Also, if you're drugged and you kind of don't even know what happened to you, that there might be reasons why you don't go to the police. So they framed it in a different way. I know there was some Cosby victims there in the court. Is this a validation now for the 60 women that have accused him of drugging and raping them? And this means a lot for them. Yeah, I spoke to Lily Bernard and Victoria Valentino, like after the court hearing, they both say they were victimized and raped by Cosby. And to them, it was an important moment for them. Lily Bernard told me that she felt like she was dreaming, like the miracle had come through. It is also a victory for womanhood, and it is a victory for all sexual assault survivors. Today, this jury has shown that the Me Too, what the Me Too movement has saying is that women are worthy of being believed. I mean, she has been in the courtroom for the entire trial this year and also last year as well. So for them, it was just, just a real victory. And, you know, they're so kind. They just say it isn't just a victory for us, but it's a victory for all sexual assault survivors. That is a victory for womanhood.
And how does this all fit into the Me Too movement? I know some people are saying this is the first major court victory since that all started. Are we going to be seeing a lot more a lot more of these things happen? Obviously, people talk to me, uh, you know, when I was starting the reporting for this case, that they considered, like, the Bill Cosby case as the bookends that started the Me Too movement because it was sort of the first time that these victims of sexual assault started coming out in social media and telling their stories. So it, it paved the way, and they see themselves as, the, as the, you know, the leaders of paving the way for other people to come forward. And they said, you know, when they came out and told their stories, on social media, you know, they were like chastised or, you right. know. And it was such commented. a it was such a wave when it first started. You know, there was a mm-hmm. few people at first and then 10, 20, 30, you know, we're up to 60. It really hit everybody how severe this was. And then after that, you know, Harvey Weinstein, everything else just started falling into place with uh, with that. It, it caused waves. Yeah. And the weird thing was the, the defense actually tried to use in their closing arguments the Me Too movement against the district attorney and, you know, the women saying, like, to the jury, don't be swayed by lynchings or McCarthyism, you know, this Me Too movement, women aren't snowflakes or things to that extent. Tried to co-opt it for their case, but obviously it didn't work. So what's next? Uh, Each count carries a maximum of 10 years, so a possible 30 years, but we don't know if either going to be served concurrently or consecutively. And people are even doubting he'd serve that much time because of his health and age. What's next? So the district attorney did mention at the press conference that they had afterwards that maybe some of the charges might be served concurrent, so he might not be sentenced to the full 30 days. His sentencing, official sentencing, won't happen for like 60 to 90 days. And during that time period, he's going to be, he can't leave Montgomery County. I think the judge said, you know, he should stay in this county here in, in Pennsylvania. And they're going to evaluate him, have like, you know, members of the probation department or these different, like, have, he has to do these different evaluations. And then they're going to have a hearing and, you know, the victims that were in court at this trial could also testify. And the DA wasn't sure that all the victims you know, that come forward and testify at this trial. He's not sure if Pennsylvania law prohibits that. So um, it'll be up to the judge to decide what sort of sentence. That's Claudia Rosenbaum. She's a BuzzFeed News reporter. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. All right, that's it for today. We'll check in again on Monday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and at Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.